This is the show. This is how the show is going to begin. Uh, why don't we just start it? Why don't we just? It's like it's like the audience in. has been here the whole time. Yeah, and you didn't know it <laughs> because you're just a big jerk. You're just sorry, ignoring, audience. Like, oh, sorry, audience. I'm, maybe now I'll talk I'm to used the to you shouting when we start the show, and so <laughs> I miss oh, that, the shouting somehow. That's still coming. <laughs> is up my nerds welcome inside pop culture with fanboy and know-it-all i'm jake i'm paul welcome inside our crazy brains we've got a third crazy brain with a us today crazy brain as i am finding out i don't know i this think i'm allowed to say morning. that i think i'm allowed to, to to say that about our guests i to think just so. call them crazy from sure. the outset i um, mean they might as well know what they're getting into right, right? yeah uh, we we record very early in the morning comparatively to most things and yeah well so you yeah. know what you never know what you're gonna get but i'm getting ahead of myself <laughs> yeah, really we're just don't. gonna we're just gonna we're not i'm actually not gonna introduce the third crazy <laughs> yeah, brain we're just gonna the voice we're just, just gonna, gonna ramble on about the morning and his voice will come in eventually <laughs> no but we've got caleb zier hello here this morning yeah thanks for having me guys yeah the legendary caleb zier oh, stop a, it. a legend in his own right, <laughs> in his own right. now uh caleb I know you. we were talking before the show, and you said this is your first time guesting on a podcast, but I know that you were working on creating a podcast. Yeah. What's what's the status on that? That is true. Um, yeah, so this is my first time uh, being a guest on a podcast, but I have recorded three episodes of my own. Wow. Uh, with, a, with a buddy, um, and it's called Let's Watch a Disney Channel Movie. <laughs> where we watch Disney Channel original movies and then review them. Oh, no. It's we we haven't published any of the episodes yet. It's kind of been put on hold, but we do have three um, locked and loaded. Wow. Okay. So what are the Disney <clears throat> movies? Can you tell or would that? Well, be uh, no. Yeah. So uh, the first one we did was Get a Clue from like uh, the late '90s with Lindsay Lohan uh. and Bug uh, Hall. Oh, yeah, it was a classic. Alfalfa. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I never saw this one. <laughs> Lindsay Lohan and Bug Hall. Yeah. Oh, I'm it's updating awesome. my Netflix queue tonight. Yeah, get it. Oh, it's great. Uh, and then we watched uh, Wendy Wu, Homecoming Warrior, which is from <laughs> 2006. It's Brenda's song. Yeah, right. And, she was she was in uh, what else? Uh, Sweet Life is Actually. Sweet Life is yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what she's known for. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that one's a great movie. It's a great kung fu movie. Uh, interesting. Yeah, and then the third one we watched was Eddie's Million Dollar Cook-Off, um, which is like from 2004, I think. Okay. Um, that one has a lot of no-names in it, but that one's a great one, too. It's a baseball <laughs> movie about a kid who then finds out he wants to cook and like be a chef. Bobby Flay's in it, actually. It's really great. So sort <laughs> of like High School Musical, only completely High School different. Musical... Except with baseball like instead of basketball. Cooking. And cooking, yeah, and cooking instead, instead of dancing, yeah. yeah. So... Um, you're really doing some deep dives right away. I mean, there's oh, yeah. no high school musicals. There's no Cheetah no, no, Girls. No, 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 no. no, These are for the diehards, not for, yeah. Yeah. Not the fanboys. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, but that's why we brought Caleb on the show. Because he knows topic, so much about Disney movies. Because <laughs> he knows a lot about Disney movies. No, not specific. Well, that's part of it. That's yeah. part of it. Because yeah. we're, we're actually talking Ready Player One. Right, Ready Player right. One. Um, we're going to be getting into. We're going to be getting all into all of it. The book, the movie, because of course the movie is out now. The movie is out, and it's a it's made by Spielberg. 
So he's kind of a big deal, a little bit. A little bit. And the book has sold a lot. I mean, it's been it's become almost like an instant classic. Yeah. In many respects. And I interestingly enough, for those of you that haven't read or watched Ready Player One, it's all about a future scenario where we all play this virtual reality video game that kind of becomes like a legitimate second life type video, uh, virtual yeah, reality yeah. video game. Mm-hmm. But the creator of it was grew up in the 80s. He's basically Paul's age. Right. <laughs> and, he is in his 80s. Yeah. He, he's, he's Paul's he's age dead. and he loves the 80s like Paul. Yeah. And so he was obsessed with all the pop culture of the 80s. Yeah. But the main character of the book is somebody who – didn't live in the 80s, didn't live in the 20, uh, 20th century at all, and, but yet has studied the 80s incessantly. And Caleb is not only a huge fan of the book Ready Player One, Caleb is is like obsessed with like the 80s and 90s oh, himself. You're my I do love guy. yeah 80s and 90s culture. I don't think I studied it as much as uh, Parzival did in the books and movies but well it would be hard i mean you've got a full-time job yeah that's true (laughs) so you know what yeah but uh, i do love that stuff yeah no it's really interesting i think that one of the things that i I really enjoyed about this movie and it's actually great that that you're doing this deep disney dive because when you think about my childhood it was disney and spielberg and everything referenced in Ready Player One. Oh, yeah. And everything is referenced in every in Ready Player One. It's amazing how many songs that were my favorites that I remember dancing to in junior high or high school or whatnot. It was it was a really entertaining movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <clears throat> without further ado, let's get into our – well, I'll, I'll add this caveat before we dive in. We're going to do spoilers, guys. We, I don't think because there's a Jake way, cannot do a show. I can't do it without spoilers. doing spoilers. Well, and and you know what? I know you guys. And there's a lot of spoilers. Here. There's a lot of spoilers here for both the book and the movie. I know you're here to go there with us because you care to deep dive into this stuff. And so we're not just going to skim the surface. We're going to yeah. dig into it because there's a lot of even beyond the the coolness of '80s nostalgia. There's a lot to dig into here from a thematic. And storytelling perspective, so even theological and theological. Oh, okay, yeah, definitely. Well, I and I uh, am only a quarter of the way through the book now. Mm-hmm. That's the other reason we brought Caleb because he loves the book. But uh, there's a lot of theological stuff here. So, without further ado, let's talk Ready Player One. All right, now Caleb, being the only one here who has read the book and seen the movie, mm-hmm. we need to know, what did you think of the movie? All right. Well, I'll say I read the book twice, so I know it double, double as good. Um, <laughs> uh, but I thought the movie was 3% like the book. <laughs> so like nothing. There so were like they, they got, similarity wise. There was there were some similarities. They got most of the characters' names right. They actually changed one of the characters' names. I don't know why. Which one? Uh, show. Show. His name in the book is Shoto. Shoto. He was the. He was the yellow uh, samurai. Samurai. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah, yellow samurai. Yeah. Eleven-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. So they're like we're just gonna we're gonna knock off Toe for Toe. fun. 
Who needs the toe? Yeah, well, we, we millennials know. shorten everything. Apparently, and Spielberg, he gets us. So yeah, there's that. <laughs> but yeah, so it's not very similar. No, not very similar. Like, like the concept, I guess, is the same. Like there's an Easter egg hidden in this game, but other than that, like there's not a whole lot. Really, the book, like the um, the riddles to find the keys are all different because they change the challenges in the movie and um, a lot of the stuff of how everything happens, how they find this, uh, the keys and how they find the gates and all the challenges are different. Um, so there's a whole lot that mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that was different. That was different. I didn't hate the movie. Right. But, um, yeah. So let me ask, what when you look at the, especially the challenges, I guess mm-hmm. one of the things that I, I think about this movie is that the challenges were so visually spectacular. Yeah. I mean, that opening car chase was, oh, yeah, that was amazing. Lynn manuel Miranda can't shut up about it on Twitter. So. Yeah, no, it was, it was super cool. But, so did they do it because the, the challenges that they chose to do, were they more cinematic? Were the, the ones in the book more um, at home in a book? Yeah, you know what? The book is very much so an adventure book. Like, uh-huh. You know, I'm traveling these different worlds, and I'm, like, figuring out these clues, and it's very, like, right. you know, you're thinking through everything, but I guess in the movie they made it a car chase because, like, that's so much more visually appealing. Sure. And so the first challenge is him playing a video game, Storks, from, like, the 70s. It's called, it's called Joust. Joust, Joust, But yeah. there's, there's Joust. Which is one of my favorite video games. You that was really? Joust? Oh, I've never yeah, heard of Joust. No, okay. I know all about yeah. Joust. It was one of the only video games that I was any good at at yeah. all. So. And so, so that's the first challenge. in the book. You, I would have I would have not been great, but I would have <laughs> known what Joust was. <laughs> yeah. So playing, I guess I can see playing in, like, is it 8-bit? <clears throat> 8-bit, 16-bit. We did arcade. Back in the day, it was just a video game. (laughs) So playing, like, this little video game, I guess, is... On an arcade console. Yeah, isn't, like, appealing... As appealing to uh, (laughs) this crazy car chase with a DeLorean and a monster truck, you know, flying and a dinosaur and... The King Kong. Dinosaur and King Kong and... All, it was yeah. swinging wrecking balls and people dying and shedding coins, coins everywhere, spilling everywhere. Uh, yeah. yeah, versus a kid and a mummy playing on an arcade cabinet, which is a a funny visual, but how you can't really keep people's attention for mm-hmm. too long, right? Right. Where it's like, and the ostriches slamming yeah. into the stork again. All right, there we go. Yeah, no, I, it, difficult to build tension there. Even as even as a Drouse fan, I think that I might have checked out. At that point, just a little bit. Yeah. You know, I was telling Jake after we saw the movie, like, when you're reading the book, you know that feeling when you're playing hide-and-seek and, and like, you know, someone's about to find you and get that, like, feeling in your stomach, like, I don't know, that's how I feel reading the book, and that's how, like, I felt like where it's just, like, no one knows that he's here and he's finding this key and, like, he's the only one and, like, it's just really, like, I don't know, it feels more maybe intimate compared to... How it felt in the movie. You're where, kind like, of feeling his emotions yeah. as yeah. he's trying really to stay it. a step ahead. Yeah. yeah. Well, and there's something, there is something about the intimacy of a book that just sort of transcends, actually, I think, all media. You know, you, when you watch a movie, you watch it for a couple hours, you can be entertained. But when you get into a book, there is something about the interaction. I think that, that someone, lots of people have probably said that it, it's a very immersive experience where... Mm-hmm. Where movie watching is essentially passive, right? Reading a book is interactive, and so you bring so much more of yourself, and you get so much more wrapped up in it. And I think it, it becomes that's part of the the 
the book's power, I think. And that's yeah. why, you know, people still do it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, physiologically and psychologically, when we talk about how we spend our leisure time, whether it's reading or watching something, watching TVs and watching watching TV shows and watching movies is a passive experience for our brain. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's even though they're both passive experiences for our bodies, it's only reading that's a passive experience or it's only reading that's an active experience for your brain. Mm -hmm. So your brain is engaging with the material differently, Mm -hmm. which is going to give you a different set of feelings than when you're just passively engaging. Yeah, absolutely. Let me ask you, just because this is actually on the heels of a podcast that Jake and I did last week where we talked all about books and movies and the differences between them and, and, and that type of thing mm-hmm. and and how some properties are able to take the spirit of the book or whatever source material there is while changing some of the things about it. Like yeah. Wrinkle in Time did not work in that way. Okay. Tomb Raider, Jake thought did. Is this Ready Player One, do you think that it captured the spirit of the book or did it fail in that regard? Honestly, I don't think it got the spirit of the book. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I didn't feel like I was on an adventure. Mm. And I think that was kind of the point of the book is, like, you're on this adventure with this kid and, like, you're trying to figure everything out with him. And in the book, it was kind of – it was rushed a bit. Like, I think there was a little bit of adventure, but it was pretty rushed and felt yeah. more like an, I guess, action. Just yeah. Just a regular just yeah. action movie. It was a, it was a visual – Visually it was great. amazing yeah. visually, but yeah, I can understand what you're saying because it didn't feel like it didn't feel it felt like a showtime spectacular, mm-hmm. you know. But it didn't feel I, I didn't find as much as I enjoyed the movie. I think mm-hmm. I enjoyed the movie more than you did. Um, I didn't find the characters particularly engrossing. No, uh, I didn't find the story, although it moved along and I could follow it, and, and it had a certain sort of resonance to it i didn't find the story particularly compelling so yeah it just didn't feel quite yeah as rich there were a whole lot of things that were left out or really rushed that i thought would have been great for the character development like his relationship with artemis would have was a whole lot more than him meeting her twice and then being like i'm in love with you like yeah that didn't happen like that and Mm so uh yeah a lot of stuff was rushed and there wasn't a whole lot of character development but um i think there, for this to work and to see it like on the screen, it would have to be like a mini series or yeah. something like that. There's so much to it that it yeah. couldn't be just a one movie. It would have to be multiple movies, or yeah. I think a mini series would probably yeah. be better. But well, it's funny. It's funny that you say that, and I, I want to since we talked about the book movie, you know, translating stories. I don't want to get too hung up on that because I do want to really dig into kind of the pop culture nostalgia here, but. It was interesting, uh, now that I've started reading the book, Caleb lent me his copy the day after we saw the screener. And so I've started reading the book, and right in the first, in the introduction, like the first chapter of the book, you know, you're, you're, it's, the story is being told from Parzival, you know, this young teenage boy who's trying to find this Easter egg that will give him control of the Oasis, which is this VR world. And he's got to complete these three challenges by its creator. He actually sets up the book at the end of the first chapter to say he kind of sets up the world. And then he's like, now my story has been told in, like in books, in movies, in miniseries, and none of them got it right. So here is yeah. the story from me. And so it's kind yeah. of funny. 
yeah. that then there's there's almost a bit of a wink wink in my opinion to a movie being a very different version of it. Yeah. Because he in the book itself, the author writes it in to say, look, people have tried to tell this story other ways. This is the way you need to hear it. Well, and it's interesting, too, and this may be a segue into your pop culture thing, because I think even Spielberg was nodding to it. You know, the, one of my favorite scenes in the movie was the whole shiny thing. Yep. Yeah, that was cool. Thing. And, and they talk in, in, in right when they're starting to go into The Shining... The clue itself. Um, the clue itself, Parseval, looks at The Shining and says, this was the the creator's eleven favorite movie. That the hater creates. Exactly. And and Stephen and, and Stephen King hated the, the Shining movie, even though the Shining movie was in itself a classic. And so you sort of have you have that, that tension in the shining reflected kind of within this movie where yeah. Spielberg is maybe saying to fans of the book yeah, I know this is changing a whole bunch, but maybe it can be worth it on its own terms. Yeah. Did you think that when that when they talked about it in the movie? Because I hadn't even read the book yet, and that was exactly my thought is, I wonder if he's given a bit of a nod to the changes here. I thought that too, yeah, yeah. when he's like, you know, Stephen King hated Kubrick's, you know, how yeah. he did The Shining. So I think that was a little bit of a nod Um yeah, I didn't. Th- I don't think I thought about it too much, but I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah." I was. I wonder how Ernest Klein feels about Spielberg's um, version, version of his story. Of Ready yeah. One. yeah, yeah. I just felt that that scene that was actually probably my favorite scene in the whole movie, and, and you know, from from my day job plugged in perspective, that's that's an issue because you watch that scene and you want to go watch The Shining, yeah. So you can catch all the different no. things. You no, know? you don't want to go watch The Shining. <laughs> the Shining is was, a terrible, terrible movie. It was, it was so well done. No, everything was just, just so dumb, pitch perfect. <laughs> no, yes, you're right. They nail The Shining, but the fact that they're making fun of it as they do it, yeah, makes it. Bearable. The Shining is not that much fun. <laughs> you know, I was hoping they'd do something with that where they go inside a movie because they do that yeah. in the book. They, not with The Shining. Not with The Shining. This doesn't spoil anything for the book, so but they do that with War Games. Okay. And uh, also with uh, um, The Holy Grail. Okay. Monty Holy Python. Monty Python or Indiana yeah. Jones. Yeah, yeah, no, Monty Python. Um, and so those parts like were some of my favorite parts in the book because like, they're like actually inside this movie. I was like, I wonder how they're going to do that. In the yeah. actual movie, and yeah. I guess they did it with uh, The Shining, but it was different. Than it, your, it was yeah. different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, and I actually think I will say one thing I'm actually enjoying about how different they are now that I'm reading the book is that I feel like I'm getting two really cool stories that are built on the same yeah. concept mm-hmm. for the price of one, in a sense. Yeah, um, because. I I I'm a per, I'm a personality that doesn't like to revisit most movies mm-hmm. or books or like there's very few pieces of entertainment whether it's a video game a book a movie that I like to read or watch or play more than once. Yeah, well. And so we could argue that a lot of your taste in movies is really just the same movie over and over again. But that's lies, a conversation. Lies. You could argue that but you'd be wrong. Um, but so I was it was one of those things where you know, Caleb turned to me as soon as the movie was done. He's like, "I'll, I'll, I'll bring you the book tomorrow because it's way different." <laughs> and, It'll be a completely different story. <laughs> and I was still like, "But is it that much different? Am I going to feel like I already know it?" Right. I can say for sure. Oh, this is a way different story, and I'm, I've gotten now to enjoy both of them for what they are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so, so there's there's an interesting thing there, and in that 
Yeah. You know, if we can get outside of that mindset of it needs to be the same thing, it can be it can well, be fun because hey, there was so like even the book itself couldn't get into all the pop culture that it references. Like early on in the book, he talks about Parzival talks about all the research he's done to get to know the 80s and how he's read all 20, he's read all the books of all 20 of ha- uh, James Halliday, the creator of the Oasis. He's read all the author's books, of, and there's like 20 of them. He's watched all the movies of his favorite creators, played all the video games, mm-hmm. and read all the comic books. I'm like, how do you have time for this? It's only been five years since you even learned about this. Yeah. And no so, gainful employment, at least not. Yeah, that's true. That, and that's, that's his excuse, is that he goes to school and he does nothing else all week. Yeah. But, um, so this intense obsession, and not just obsession, it's a very worshipful approach to popular culture and nostalgia. And, and we get a little bit of that in the movie. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the interesting thing here that, that had me really intrigued and wanting to talk about Ready Player One before I saw the movie and before I read the book was, <laughs> uh, you know, this, this – because we've, we've mentioned this on the show before, how – the movie theater has, in many ways, become a church. A, a church, yeah. It's for a place of worship. Pop culture, where we in a congregate. Yeah, in a in a secular construct, it's this place where we congregate and we share stories and we share testimonies. You know, they're obviously mostly fictional, but sometimes they're true and all that. And we talk about them and we dissect them. I mean, that's why we have this show. Right. Exactly. And is to talk about the themes and the ideas and the entertainment and all of that that we find in these shared stories. And that's – in when you get to the nitty-gritty, that's kind of how you could oversimplify a lot of right, right. religion. Well, and one of the things that, that I really noticed in this movie, um, and I, from what I understand, it's even more prominent in the book, is, is this idea where – you really do have this sense of a creator God here. This this person created truly this universe that mm-hmm. people in many ways live in. This is where they want to be. And so you, you develop this very interesting dynamic where these people truly... I mean, when you watch them go to the library where they have all of the creator's memories stored and all of his moments, you know, cataloged... Um, you have a sense that they are almost on some sort of religious pilgrimage mm. to look at sacred texts and um, find meaning, find actual meaning in the world and secrets within that world that are, other people are not very privy to. Um, how, how did that, was that religion sort of, manif- that, that look at religion manifested in the book? I think a little bit. And they didn't have that place, I guess, in the book where they went and viewed it. They but didn't they, have the library. They had, like, a journal uh-huh. to look through. And th- I guess, yeah, they could they kind of use that as their Bible. Yeah. And say, like, I mean, the way that they worshipped that thing and they studied it. They knew it right. uh, cover to cover. So I would say so, yeah. I guess there is that kind of worship of James Halliday. Um, yeah. The yeah, book. they – he he does occasionally in the book because I've I've at least read enough. I'm about like I said a quarter of the way into the book. I've read enough to kind of hear the the setup of how Parzival has spent his time in the five years from Halliday's death to where the book picks up. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how yeah he he was so uh, so 
obsessed with, so reverent of um, the the archive. What's uh, what's the name of the wizard? Now I'm forgetting the name of the wizard. Anorak. Anorak, yeah. Anorak's archive, you know, this book that he wanted a digital copy, but he found a way to print a hard copy of his own. Yeah. So that he could pour over it even when the power was out. Yeah. And he could analyze the words and he could memorize it. And he so could, it becomes he, like a Bible, it, a sacred text. Yeah. The way he talks about studying it and, and trying to find meaning in the words is very much like the way we would think about the way we read the Psalms and the way we read the Proverbs right. and the words of Jesus in the Bible or... If you're in another religion, the way you would read the words of you know your own sacred sure. text to find meaning, to find the direction, whatnot, the... yeah, and to find where you need to go next or how you need to react in a certain situation, and that is that is that that religious zeal is what drives the gunters, the egg hunters, yeah. Yeah. forward. Well, they they know everything about the creator, and that's how they're going to find yeah. their salvation and that's how they're going to find their ultimate yeah. goal. Well, and even even the name Parsifal, of, of course, and they mention this in the movie, is, mm-hmm. is a nod to, you know, probably the most famous sacred quest of all time, you know, mm-hmm. the search for the Holy Grail. Separate, yeah. you know, separated from the Monty Python version of the Holy yeah. Grail. But, you know, this was this was a classic a medieval theme that that so many stories have been told for so many generations, hundreds upon hundreds of years, and and so you have this this person named after after the finder of the Holy Grail, who who actually because of of his pure heart was able to find it, and so you have these echoes back to not only sort of that that video game sense of quest. Almost all video games are really quests in a way. Um, but it also harkens back to just sort of that that religious connotation yeah. to it all. You know, the the idea that they are searching for something secret and holy and, and truly from the hand of God, which in this world of, of Ready Player One is obviously the creator of Oasis. Yeah. And in the movie, at the end, it almost seems like there's a nod to, like, Halliday might be God. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if you noticed that, but, like, right. he's like, are really you weird. a video game or are you alive? He's like, are you he, dead and... And then he's, he's like, gonna, "Yeah, I'm dead." Are you video game? And he's like, "What does he say?" He's yeah, like, it was said. So what are you? He, he and he just leaves. Yeah, he, yeah. He, it's sort of like, so if you're dead, you're not an avatar. What are you? And he just leaves. And he just leaves. And so it was kind of to make the audience think, "Oh yeah, maybe he is this god." But they it was almost a Job-like moment. Oh, I am. Yeah. You know, this is this is who are you to ask? Mm-hmm. You know that type of yeah. Thing. But they don't do that in the book. Mm. Which I thought was interesting. So Spielberg took it to make it, you almost think about it more, that like Halliday is some god, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. Did that bother you at all? Um, not really. No, you're not really. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. no I, but <laughs> You can say whatever you want. This is a free, judgment-free zone. No, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think too much about it. I was just like, oh, okay. Yeah. No, I didn't. I it, it's funny because I didn't even think about the God connection in that regard in that right. scene. What what stuck out more to me than anything was the way we we try to find meaning in the shared experience of these these texts and these right. movies and these games, mm-hmm. um, because that that to me is kind of the heartbeat of the story so far. Obviously, I haven't gotten to the end of the book. But in both the book and the movie, just this idea that that 
the meaning that was given to Halliday's life came through the pop culture that he loved. Yeah. And at least in the movie, he gives a nod to the real world is the only place right, right, I can right. get a decent meal. Yeah. So there is value in the real world. But at the same time, it's like, but this pop culture stuff, it's amazing. It makes us laugh. It makes us cry. It makes us think. It helps us escape the tough stuff in our life. Mm. And the movie's kind of like, well, the movie's ultimate conclusion is, hey, Maybe at least have one or two days where you're not <laughs> yeah, playing video exactly. games. But yeah. still, still, pop culture is the thing. Right. That yeah. is really like almost more so than James Halliday is the god. It's the pop culture. It's the entertainment. It's the nostalgia. It's yeah. the, the things that we escape into that are the yeah. ultimately kind of like the little mini lowercase g gods. Again, not explicitly, no, but no. implicitly. And so I think it's a curious thing to look at because I try to think about it in my own life is at what point are these becoming that in my own mm-hmm. walk? Like even if I'm not in the Oasis, even if I'm not obsessively rewatching John Hughes movies because James Halliday loved John Hughes movies, mm-hmm. at what point am I looking to pop culture to be yeah. that escape but more than escape, when does it cross the line from escape into this is my medication? When does it cross from that into this is my cathedral? This is my safe space. This right. is my well, yeah, chapel. And, and I think that, that when you look at the movie, and it, it may be the same for the book as well, um, this is really a movie about a search for meaning, right? I mean, yeah. it, it really is about where you find meaning in your life. Mm-hmm. How do you find it? And to who do you turn your attention to when you, when you find that? You know, and I think that there's, there is, um, it, it's really fascinating. I think that the interplay uh, that they have within Halliday and the players who are following his path, in a sense, because there's, there's a suggestion that I think that, that trying to find meaning in what can seem sometimes to be a meaningless world is a very universal impulse. And I think that we turn toward, you know, in our own lives, we turn toward God to, to, to seek that meaning, to, to, to see that there is meaning within the chaos that sometimes we see around us. There's purpose. We have purpose. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that I think that this movie reflects so brilliantly is that desire for purpose, that desire to find the underlining construct for what they see around them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, and in the book, it almost seems like like there's the main plot of you know finding the egg, but there's this underlying plot of him like not trying to find meaning itself, but like I think it's him trying to find love. Yeah. A lot, a lot of the um, plot has to do with like him and Artemis's relationship that the movie doesn't really get into, but about him like trying to find love, and you kind of see at the end of the book. I don't want to spoil anything, but like you know, all that kind of pop culture stuff and sure. uh, everything in the Oasis kind of isn't as important as, like, love and, like, him yeah. searching for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's and, kind of what I got from it. And the book, didn't, or the movie doesn't really get into all that. It kind of yeah. is more about the pop culture and the egg. And yeah. They, they do sort of, they have these echoes again and again back to the importance of relationships, mm-hmm. back to the importance of, you know, they make a big deal of Parseval. Um, being sort of a loner at the very beginning, and he finds these friends. He finds Artemis. 
um, and they talk a lot about um, Halliday, who's this loner throughout his life, and how he sort of shed those relationships for this this virtual world, and and it's almost sort of this posthumous um, thought that maybe he didn't do it quite right, <laughs> which I find really interesting. You know? Yeah, no, I think. I like that it it tries to give a nod to that in the movie, and I guess I'm just kind of wondering if it if it actually lands that point, or if it ends up being more like the Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, you know, where no, the Wolf of Wall absolutely. Street, they're like, oh no, this is saying all this stuff was terrible, and that there were consequences for it. But when you watch the Wolf of Wall Street, which I don't recommend, actually, it's pretty rough. So don't go watch see The, the Shining Wolf. before you see Wolf yeah. of Wall Street. I actually would recommend if I had to if. <laughs> Which of these those two, two evils? I'd be like, all right, go watch The Shining. <laughs> um, but it's like it, the movie, the Wolf of Wall Street movie, which I reviewed a couple of years ago. It spends two and a half hours like yeah. reveling in this hedonism and this vulgarity, and then in the final like two to three minutes, it's like, oh, he he went to jail for thirty seconds, and now he's a motivational speaker, yeah. and I'm like. Yeah. That doesn't seem like it really hits home this point that, oh, there were consequences for his actions. Yeah, it's no. like, no, it was two and a half hours of look at this amazing hedonistic lifestyle. And, oh, yeah, he happened to go to jail, whatever. But yeah. And so I, I kind of – I had that sense with the movie where they tried to give nods to the fact that Halliday, you know, missed out on love in his life mm-hmm. because of his obsessions – and that at the very end, Parzival says, you know, hey, make sure you get out into the real world a couple of days a week because that's a good thing. And you yeah. can meet flesh and blood people there. But it's two and a half hours of, man, I want to hang this out in so the Oasis. Cool. Yeah. The Oasis yeah. is awesome. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned that. And, and for once, I think you and I see a movie fairly alike, you know. I think that uh, that I actually talked with the guy who reviewed the movie for Plugged In, and we almost came to blows over that very same point. <laughs> because he saw the movie as much more uh, redemptive, where there yeah. was this turnaround that the, the real important things are, are what's on on the outside of Oasis. And I felt like, although they made nods in that direction, for sure, I came down, I left with the impression that the Oasis is really cool and they're only turning it off for two days a week. (laughs) So, the rest of the time, feel free to lose yourself. And so, (laughs) and that's that's not a knock against an entertaining movie, but it is something to be aware of. That that I I don't think that that the intended messages, maybe that were more prominent in the book, were particularly obvious in the movie. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say so. It's hard to say. The book, yeah, doesn't really get into too much about like, hey, we worship this stuff. Like, right. get out there. They don't get into that as much as they did like at the end of the book, saying like, oh, yeah, turn it off for a couple of days. But there is kind of that tone of like, you know what? There are times where I. I feel like the Oasis doesn't matter. And like, there are more important things that they mentioned a couple times. But other than that, yeah, there isn't yeah. too much of a, like, this is bad for us. Yeah. So, Caleb, let me just ask you just flat out. Mm-hmm. If someone had the book in front of them yeah. and three hours free time to go see the movie and they could do one or the other but not both, would you have them read the book? Oh, yeah, read the book. <laughs> 100% read the book and then read it again. It, <laughs> it's just, 
It's amazing. When Jake was describing the plot twice, I got goosebumps both times. I was like, oh, it's so good. But, uh, yeah, read the book. Yeah. Well, because it – we already live in a time where, in a sense, we have a lot of what the Oasis offers. I mean, the book was written in 2011, so Ernest Cline kind of knew – uh, like the the entertainment landscape at the time, and it's only ever increased yeah. since then. It's something you know when you see those ridiculous statistics about how many years it would take you just to watch everything that's on Netflix right now, um, versus like all the video games that are out. Uh, in a sense, we've been living in the oasis for a good decade with our phones and our social media and our websites and the internet. Like it's not VR yet, even though we're trying to get there. But we've got so much entertainment to numb us to what's going on mm-hmm. around us that it's I, – I think I think what I wanted and I'm interested to see as they get there is – or what the culture is looking for is, man, I have all this. I'm entertained, but there's yeah. got to be something more. Yeah. You know, I think that's speaking to a generation that's saying – I have all these conveniences. I have all these excesses. I have all these entertainment. At least a first world right. generation. But but what is what else is there? What is that bigger meaning? Is it because actually early on in the book, it's funny he talks about uh, Parzival talks about how he has a neighbor who's an older lady, like in her sixties or seventies, who's a Christian, right? And mm-hmm. she spends most of her time, you know, going to church inside the oasis. And he and he said he thought about telling her. You know, trying to talk to her about how everything she believes is a bunch of bull. But then he decided not to because it was a pleasant fantasy that helped her get by in a hard world. And and when he was honest with himself, that's what the egg hunt was for him. That's what mm-hmm. Halliday's challenge was for him. It's a pleasant fantasy to help me get through the day in a hard world. Mm-hmm. But And so even though we don't have the Oasis, that's a lot of how I think – I feel at least yeah. in the world we are in right now where we have this 24-7 news cycle that's really negative and the world's the world's a mess like it's always been. And now we have all these escape options. I can go watch Netflix. I can yeah. go play a video game. I can play Legends of Zelda for hundreds of hours. I can play one game for hundreds of hours and there's thousands of more games like that yeah no it's it it's an interesting place where we are in the world and maybe we always have been and we just technology has given us so many more ways to escape um and and it is sort of this war that i think all of us sort of deal with on on one level or another i i think i've mentioned my love of skyrim and and you know when i'm hardcore into the game it feels very real. Like when I'm walking from one place to another at work, mm-hmm. my brain is on Skyrim. What I'm going to do that night when I go home, you know? And I think that you do Organize have, your bookshelf? Organize the bookshelves. <laughs> and, and you have these, these escapes. And I think in some ways, the escapes that, that this movie really presents to us are healthy. I mean, he, they're not only talking about video games, although those are... So obviously an escape, but all the pop culture world that they talk about, all of those yeah, music, escapes, movies, TV shows, video King games, Kong books. movies, all that kind of stuff. It's it's these are things that we do to get away from the real world for a while, and I personally feel that there's sometimes merit to that. 
But we have to be, I think, if there's a, w- a warning to this movie, it is it is that, you know, make sure that you don't forget that there's a real world mm-hmm. and there are real problems. That's That's one thing that I wish that the movie had done, and I don't know whether the book does it or not, but I wish the movie... The movie hints at all these problems that are in the world that no one has the inclination to even address, much less solve. It never comes back to that in the movie, as far as I can tell. Those problems are all there. And the Oasis is still there. And Mm -hmm. it's still open five days a week. And you sort of, you need sometimes those escapes, but they're respites, you know? There are things that you can get away from the real world so you can deal with the real world more effectively. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I find myself just seeing uh, everything we have as an escape, like video games, Netflix, stuff like that. And so I I think this might be bad. Sometimes, like, after a day of work, I'll, like, go watch Netflix and I can feel myself go... (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I feel true. good. I'm at peace, and that's how a lot of the in the book, at least, it explains. Like you know, oh, I put on my haptic uh, suit and my gloves and the goggles, and oh, now I can rest easy and I feel better. Now I have this escape, and I think that's kind of dangerous too. To uh, it's good to recognize it. Like when I recognize, it, I'm like, oh yeah, I just like relaxed and felt more at ease now that I'm here, and I could like just watch Netflix now. And so I think that's something to look out for. Mm. Yeah. Just like starting to rely yeah. on right. what yeah, it's to not, entertain us. Yeah, it's absolutely fine in doses, but the problem is, and I guess a, a lot of this is pointing internal to me, the problem is is that I get really reliant on that. Mm-hmm. And it's, I need Madden, I need Netflix, I need YouTube, I need, you know, whatever it is to just... take that deep breath and the problem i for me as a christian is that's not where ultimately i'm supposed to find that and because it's because ultimately i'm never satisfied actually you and caleb you and i were talking about this before the movie Hmm. about how we're always looking forward to the next thing and we have this insatiable hunger for the next thing when we're relying on pop culture to be that breath to be that escape we're like it's, we're always going to need another dose. We're always going to need another escape, and we're always looking to the next thing. And so our hunger, our appetite yeah. grows, you know. And so, yeah, I think for Christians we have to watch out because it's so easy. Because it's so easy to watch Netflix. Because it's so easy to escape into video games. We have to be careful that that isn't what we do all the time. Yeah. Because it's so easy for it to become all the time without us, without me even realizing it. Yeah, and so that's that's why I resonate with what the nods that are there, and why I, I think we have an interesting. We're at an interesting spot just culturally, where people are saying, "Boy, I've been chasing this rabbit this way for so long, right. playing video games, talking to people on Snapchat and Facebook and Instagram and." everywhere else and watching movies and watching TV shows and I'm still hungry. I'm still anxious. I'm still depressed because it doesn't solve any of Parzival's mm-hmm. problems. Even if he gets that immediate hit of, ah, he still has anxiety. Yeah. He still has needs. He still has hungers. And we don't, the more we set that up as our habit, the harder it's going to be to actually go look for where we can find that truly. Yeah. I wanted to bring up two points just related to exactly what you were talking about. Because, again, the, the, 
the movie being sort of this search for meaning, I think, is fascinating. Obviously, the, the movie pulls a lot from pop culture of the 80s. And I remember as a kid in the 80s, all the video games that you played never had an ending. And I remember very distinctly when I was a sophomore in high school, there was this game that I played all the time. It was just a video on, in television, and I loved it. And it was Tron. You know, mm -hmm. the, where you're throwing these discs and you're vanishing people and it's really cool. And I got really good at it, but it never, ever ended. And it sank me at actually literally just playing that game and getting as good at that game as I did. It took me into a depression because it felt like it all of a sudden I had this realization. This is what life is. You're just there every single day doing your thing. It never ends. You mm -hmm. never, you never win. And when I look at the movie, oddly enough, even though it's it's everything that we talk about as far as the cautioning of this virtual real reality world is is very true, and and the nods that the movie makes to it are very real. But the thing that strikes me as we're talking is that Parsifal, in his search for what Halliday wanted to do with this world is really a search for meaning. Mm -hmm. It is explicitly an attempt to see and understand this God. And it seems like that is a reflection of what gives me meaning. You know, when when I think about what gives me meaning, you look at the world around us and it, it it's, can be so difficult and so confusing. And that quest, the mirror that, that of, of that Parsifalian quest that we see in the movie where he's seeking this meaning is reflected, I think, in our own lives where we are, are constantly, every day, we're trying to reach a little bit closer to God, trying to, to understand his will for our lives and for the world a little bit better and try to make, as Parsifal does in the movie, make this world a better place, make it more in the image of what the creator wanted it to be. And with that, <laughs> crescendo, <laughs> resounding analysis, what did you guys think? <laughs> the book of the movie? No, before we, before we move on to the most least important thing, I want to hear on a scale of 1 to 10, as trying to set aside the book as much as possible for you, Caleb, mm -hmm. what would you rate Ready Player One, the movie? Ready Player One, just the movie. If I haven't seen, if I haven't read the book, I would give it a seven out of ten. Seven out of ten, Paul. You know, I'd go. I'm I'm the fanboy here. I'd I'd give it an eight. Yeah, I w I would have to say that uh, I'm. I would give it my experience watching it in IMAX 3D. I would give that an eight. That being said. It had, and I mentioned this before, it had a bit of an avatar feel to me that I'm curious to see if... If it lasts. Yeah, yeah, if once I'm not in a theater with massively huge speakers and 3D glasses, if it's going to feel a little bit uh, underwhelming. Yeah. But the IMAX 3D version, I'm giving it an 8 out of 10. It's visually spectacular. Absolutely spectacular mm -hmm. from a visual standpoint. And the story does move at a pretty tight clip, even if there's plot holes, which of course there are going to yeah. be plot holes in a VR movie. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I thought it was quite an entertaining film. And now with that, it's time for the most least important thing. 
we are inside <laughs> the most least important thing. I'm going to now tell you that in the most least important thing, we like to talk about the juggernauts of pop culture and how really maybe they're actually tiny, like Mighty Mouse. Or we talk about the little things like ants and how perhaps, just perhaps, they're bigger than skyscrapers. Caleb, take it away. Well, there's something. <laughs> this feels very NPR. Yeah, to me. I got a little this, NPR. You don't. You I'm Ira Glass. <laughs> All right. uh, no, Go, Ira. there's something going on um, right now, and no one's talking about it. And I saw a headline for it, and I was like, "This is, this wasn't trending," and I feel like it should be. Uh, and that's that they're reshooting uh, the Dark Phoenix and the New Mutants movies, and they're getting pushed back. Uh, Dark Phoenix is getting pushed back to February 2019. I don't care about Dark Phoenix. That's like um, yeah, yeah, going to yeah. be a, the Apocalypse sequel, I guess. But I care about the new Mutants movie because I think that looks awesome, and they're reshooting it um, to make it scarier for the audience. And no, there, were, there weren't any headlines about it. Like I had to search New Mutants because I, I was looking for what kind of font they used in their um, <laughs> uh, thing. And like then I was like, well, they're reshooting it, and no one was talking about it. I'm like, this is, I think, big because they said their audience that they showed it to, the very small audience they showed it to, like didn't respond like – like they wanted it to, like it wasn't scary at, like ah. scary enough for them. So they're reshooting um, to make it uh, scarier. And this is a movie that when I saw the trailer, which I think they showed us like super early, because um, it wasn't supposed to come out until February 2019, um, and now it's supposed to come out August 2019. So they're reshooting half the movie right now. Goodness gracious! To make it scarier. Who's the director? I'm actually not. Uh, entirely sure who the but there's see this always makes me but, nervous yeah because this happened with Suicide Squad right? it happened with Suicide Squad mm-hmm. it happened yeah it, and you just always worry when there's that many reshoots yeah. of what it's gonna turn into Suicide Squad made me not want to watch another DC movie actually it was it was really disappointing I thought yeah. So it, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't ever bode well when you have that no. many reshoots. Reshoots aren't a good sign. There was a movie recently, I can't remember what it was, but that had reshoots and it wasn't Suicide Squad. It was another one. It was another one where and it wasn't all the money in the world or that one they reshoot. Yeah, that, would, that Spacey, one was but the, I heard that one that, that one actually work. was a reshoot yeah. and they did well. Um but yeah, the reshoots on new mutants yeah, no one's talking about it. Yeah, I'm all nervous for it. Do you think it's because one, I think it, I I, have, I wonder if it's because of two things. One, X Men Apocalypse was so bad, like it's just a dumb movie. Yeah. Um. So are we kind of just done with that X Men universe? I think we're so, done with yeah. the dark, like with the Dark Phoenix. Sure, like that. I'm sure that. But might to be the part general public, we don't really. I, I don't is, know the difference. No, I think this no. is like going to be like a Deadpool style, like sure. or like a Logan, where it's like completely. Um, off brand and it's going to be like yeah. really dark graphic and just a different tone than what like the other X-Men movies. I, I got to be honest with you. I mean I I have not really cared about an X-Men movie for a long time mm. except for Logan. Logan yeah. well, was brilliant. And but. then my other point was because we, we've talked about this before is we, there's such a we have such a complete saturation of superhero movies. I wonder if it's kind of like well, it's another superhero movie because we have so many of them coming out. I mean, we have three Marvel movies coming out within, what, seven, eight months of each other this yeah. year with Black Panther, Infinity War, and Ant-Man and the Wasp. 
all jam-packed into the same year. And that's not even counting all the other superhero movies out there. It's like, I I ain't got time to care about what one's coming out two years from now. There's five coming out this year that I haven't, Hmm. I got to pay attention to. Yeah, Maybe that contributes to it where we're like, whatever, I'll figure that out when it comes out. Mm -hmm. Perhaps, I don't know. You know, something I'm just thinking about is maybe why they're reshooting. It's because Maisie Williams, uh, who is gonna is in New Mutants, but she's also probably shooting Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's why they pushed it back too. No, that is might to, be. Uh, to give them time because We're I know that's it. why they're pushing back Dark Phoenix too. Is because uh, the redhead girl. Yeah. What's her face? Yeah. Can't think of her name. Is it the same one? She's in Game of Thrones as well, and she oh. was in Apocalypse. Gotcha. But they're pushing back Dark Phoenix. Because of her schedule. Game of Thrones as well. Yeah, we, we have to, with all these popular actors that they like to use everywhere, they're having to reschedule everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm getting back into Atlanta right now that just started second season after over a year break because Donald Glover was shooting Hunt, the solo movie. Oh, yeah. So they're just, like, pausing everything and shuffling actors around because they're just so, so darn popular. So darn popular, just like us. All right, Paul. What do you got for us today on the most least important thing? All right. This is going to be a very most least important thing because I think it's a movie that um, not only isn't playing very many places, I don't think it's in very many places that any of our listeners can go see because it's... Only playing in it's only playing in It's only playing in New York and L.A. right now. And I think it's going to be coming out into some select theaters elsewhere. But it is... An amazing movie. I'm talking about Summer in the Forest. And it's really nice, actually, that, that we were talking so much about this movie where, where the primary theme is meaning. Summer in the Forest is all about that, essentially. Um, it's a documentary about this program called uh, L'Arche. It's a, it's a French program um, headed by this guy. He's a, he's a French Catholic philosopher theologian um, named Jean Vignet. And he has built this community of, of homes, essentially, for um, people who have severe mental disabilities. Hmm. Um, they are insane or they have brain damage or they have lots and lots of difficulties where before, because they're sort of unmanageable in, in, in certain respects within society, they would have been thrown into asylums. These communities um, give sort of this, this sense of of hope and meaning and community for these people. I had a chance to talk with the director. His name is Randall Wright. Mm-hmm. He said some wonderful things about this program. He talked about how um, he started this pro- project because I think in a lot of respects, he, like most of us, have a certain fear when we meet people who are different than us, who... Um, we just we just don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. He had that same feeling. He had a, a relative who who was mentally uh, disabled, and he never really knew how to to react to her. He started this program. He went to one of these homes uh, run by Jean Vignet, and and he said, and I thought this was really interesting. He felt like it was the first place in a very very long time where he felt like he could be himself. We're constantly competing. Um, with each other in a certain sort of respect. We're always trying to present ourselves as, as handsome or intelligent or whatnot. You know, we, we have these um, facades that we build for ourselves and hide our weakness. In this place, 
Randall Wright, the director, was saying that he felt like he had come home. He felt like it was the first time where he could just be himself, where the only thing that mattered was his ability to relate to these people and their ability to relate to him. And I thought it was... It's a really touching movie. It's called Summer in the Forest. Mm-hmm. If you have a chance to see it, if it comes out on DVD, it's really worth yeah. the watch because the program and the guy who runs it are amazing. Yeah. They say, you got to stop bringing up all these movies that we can only see if we're in New York or L.A. Yeah. I know. Or, I know. Yeah, or a movie reviewer. Well, I, I because I do some, some blogging type of stuff, sometimes I get opportunities to see some of these things. Okay. And so they sent me a screener, and I had a mm-hmm. chance to watch it. Um, and I know that it's going to be on video before long. It could even be in conversation for a potential Oscar for Best Whoa. Documentary. I, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't feel as weighty as that. But in some ways, it really is an important movie. And I think... For Christians especially, when we, when we talk about how, um, even within this building we've been talking about, how, how um, sometimes we don't do ourselves a, a service okay. where we can be judgmental and where we can really strive for perfection and we demand perfection from others, this movie sort of gives an antidote to that. And I think that's really cool. It is really cool. And I'm sad that it's going to take me a long time to be able to watch it. Since... Paul just we'll gets keep all this mind, yeah. I'll, I'll, stuff. I'll keep my eye on it, and maybe we can, you know, do a little update later on. Mm-hmm. All right. So to top us all off here, does anybody remember Taylor Kitsch? Taylor uh, Kitsch. I Tim Riggins? Yeah. Tim Riggins. Yeah. 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 The, Friday Night Lights. I think of Battleship, which was one of the worst movies I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, or John Carter, John which was Carter. also not a great movie. Not a great movie. True Detective. Good. Oh yeah! I didn't, I didn't see True Detective. All right, so he's I'm not most, allowed to watch that. <laughs> you're not allowed to watch that. He's most Taylor Kitsch is most famous for his role as Tim Riggins in the Friday Night Lights TV show. That was kind of a cult. It's almost like a cult classic. Really, it great wasn't TV show. widely oh, yeah. popular, but it was super popular with a specific group of people. Oh, yeah. Or. Maybe not a specific group of people, but a group of people that just happen to really love Friday Night Lights. Mm -hmm. And he played Tim Riggins, this charismatic football star, cougar hunter. (laughs) Kind of white trash a little bit. A little bit white trash, but likable. Almost gentle giant. Yeah. 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 Dylan, Texas bad boy. (laughs) But still like a good heart. Yeah. There you go. Um, so they, Hollywood Just tried like to... every person who ever stole one of my girlfriends in high school. Go ahead. Paul hates Tim Riggins. I already hate him. Go ahead. So, so off, after the success of Friday Night Lights, or you know, its critical success and its cult success, they tried to turn Hollywood and some agents tried to turn Taylor Kitsch into this movie star. You know, that's why they stuck him in John Carter and Battleship, and they wanted to turn him into this big dollar action blockbuster tentpole kind of guy and it failed spectacularly like you said battleship was awful john carter was barely mediocre you know they were trying to be more than they could be you know and they were trying to make a game based or movie based on yeah, a game where you say a1 <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah in fairness F-10. To him, it was really the fault of the movies more than taylor right. but yeah. So he kind of he kind of fell off the radar after that. He had he had a turn in one season of True Detective yeah. 
Um, and he he showed up in that American assassin movie in 2017 oh, okay. in a role, like secondary role, supporting actor role. Um, but he's been kind of quiet until recently. This He's kind of reclusive in real life. But he started an Instagram account just three months ago. And all of a sudden, everybody's talking about Taylor Kitsch again. This guy who had totally bombed out of Hollywood pretty much mm-hmm. and now was just getting bit roles. Everybody's buzzing about his Instagram account because it's really funny and personable and and it's like, wait, isn't he the like just smoldering bad boy of Dylan? Mm-hmm. Or <laughs> <laughs> I'm beginning to think your your appeal of is a little bit I don't know, uncomfortable no, no, no. Wait, guys, you know me. Smold- you know you know smoldering I'm bad boy. You know I'm true to my boy Brad Pitt. <laughs> So this does not this does not get in the way of that. All right, moving on. Also, my wife. <laughs> Shout out to yeah. her, <laughs> Brad Pitt. Oh, and my wife. Shout out to my lovely wife. You're the best. Way better than Brad Pitt. <laughs> Sorry, Brad. And the smoldering. Anyways, bad boy. back to the smoldering bad boy of Dylan, as Caleb so aptly named him. Um, but it's brought up this really interesting question, and BuzzFeed did a did actually a whole op-ed about this, about how Hollywood wanted to turn him into one thing, and it spit him out of the system. But now he's using a platform of the people. You know, we talk about social media being of the people. It's a place where voices can be heard mm-hmm. to tell his own story and to build his own image, rather than using a PR firm, rather than using the Hollywood you know uh, hype machine. He's just. He's posting pictures of his crappy car that he had to pay $1,200 to get in high school and dig ditches and how it was the best thing because he could drive in it to fail at auditions. And he's showing pictures of himself playing hockey and pictures of himself as a little kid. And and he's just being – and all of a sudden it's like, oh, this guy has a personality. He's human. And all of a sudden John Taylor – John, I almost called him John Kitsch. Taylor Kitsch is back on the scene because of Instagram. And he once famously said, if you ever see a Twitter or Instagram account for me, it's fake because I won't get on. But this is verified. Yeah. This is him. So he lied He's, to us. He has changed his mind and is rebuilding his own image brick by brick or Instagram post by Instagram post. But is he really – I mean here's the thing. I mean maybe he just enjoys Instagram. It might not be even like rebuilding his reputation. Maybe he's fine doing but, whatever he's doing. Well, yeah, and I think he's – but. Whether how intentional it is as a career building thing or liking Instagram thing, either way, or I would wager both, yeah, it's working to rebuild yeah. his career. I'd say his stock is probably going up. Yeah, yeah. like even even other actors are coming to him and being like, "Dude, you're killing it on here! Like, I love it." Yeah. And so even other actors are like finding it refreshing mm-hmm. the way he's using it to connect directly himself not a pr version of himself not a hype version of himself not the smoldering bad bad boy of dylan version of himself but just the goofy class clown version of himself that has always been there but has been kind of hidden behind everything else so i think it's pretty fascinating to see him connecting with his own humanity in connection with the audience and it's working so there you have it it could be the least important thing or it could be (laughs) the most well, that's the Least most important, important thing, thing. To, to Taylor Kitsch. <laughs> I'm going to give him a follow right after this. All right. See? Yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll sign up for Instagram. <laughs> Although I kind of doubt it. <laughs> you kind of doubt you will. Uh, but that's that's all we've got for this time. Let us know what you think about Taylor Kitsch, Ready Player One, Summers in the Forest, X-Men movies that are being reshot. 
On the Twitter, I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. Caleb, where at, are you at? I'm at uh, CJ Zier. How do you spell Zier? Uh, Zier is Z E H R. So that is at CJ CJ Zier Z E H R. All right, I'm gonna follow you right after this. Awesome. Actually, I can't big, wait to hear your. I chain. want to hear your podcast. I can't wait. Yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully it'll we, exist because uh, my um, partner in it all. Uh, actually moved away. Oh no! Yeah, so it, it's going to be difficult to do something like you know across uh, the United States, right? Um, yeah. But, but um, could you at least could you at least do three more episodes and give us like a one off? Like it, you know, it, maybe it's not a podcast that lives on. You know, you're making episodes every week, but it's a six part podcast mini series. Yeah, I guess we could try to do that. And just get the or three of the best, you know, even classic better. Disney Channel movies. Even better, just do the podcast yourself in two different voices. And oh, you yeah. can argue with yourself. <laughs> That's actually even what, better. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I actually don't exist. That's what Jake does. <laughs> Paul is a figment of my imagination. It's just two of for, us in here right now. Yeah, thank you for letting I, that out of the bag. <laughs> and so now the two of us are going to sign off. <laughs> I'm Jake. I'm Paul. And I'm Caleb. <laughs> we'll catch you guys on the flip side. No, All no, right. we gotta redo that. You gotta say bye. Oh. Right. And so signing off for now. <laughs> I'm Jake. I'm Paul. I'm Caleb. We'll catch you on the flip side. Bye.